Hello and thanks for listening to Institutional Insights. Today I have three guests with me, Adolfo Aponte, Managing Director at Lincoln Pensions, Tom Lukic, Trustee at Dalriada, and Julian Hobday, Origination and Execution Director at LGRI. Today we'll be discussing what happens when a pension scheme's corporate sponsor is acquired by another company through an M&A transaction. So let's start with some introductions. If I can start with Tom, you can give us a brief introduction about yourself and then I'll, I'll pass over to Adelfo and then Julian. Thank you, Paige. Uh, yes, my name is Tom Lukic. I'm a director with Dalriada Trustees. Dalriada were appointed sole trustee to the scheme in question back in 2018, uh, with myself acting as the lead trustee representative, including through the transaction process, the, the subject of today's podcast. Fantastic. And if I pass over to Adolfo to do a a brief intro. Thank you, Paige. Adolfo Ponte, Managing Director within uh, Lincoln Pensions. I lead our charge uh, as it comes to endgame practice, which is a space that is developing quite quickly at the moment. In the context of today's podcast, I led the transaction from the corporate side as it came to strategic pensions matters. And last but not least, Julian. Yeah, so my, my, my role at LNG, I am a, an origination and execution director. So my main role is to work with trustee bodies and sponsors as they look to de-risk their pension scheme. So mainly through the use of buy-ins and buy-outs. So my role on this particular case was trying to win the business and then making sure that the, the, the requirements of all parties and in particular the, the corporate was much more involved here than is typically the case were, were, were met. Well thank you all and welcome and thanks for spending a bit of time with us to discuss this particular transaction. Before we delve into a bit more detail around the, the driving factors and, and what was involved in the process, Julian would you mind just giving us a quick summary of the the transaction in question. Yes, yeah, so there, there, there were some specific requirements that we were, were we had to meet, but I, I guess at a high level, it was similar to many of the smaller cases that we did over the course of 2020. So it was it was a, a full scheme transaction. So by that I mean all of the schemes members were covered by the by the buy-in policy. But this was a key objective for the sponsor in, in terms of the wider sale and purchase that was that was ongoing at the same time was to remove all of the DB exposure from the company balance sheet. In terms of the scheme benefits payable, they were pretty straightforward. Um, there were a, a few complications, as is the case with pretty much every scheme that we, that we deal with, uh, but there was nothing we hadn't seen before, and I think we were able to accommodate minor complications within within our policy and, and I guess the final point is is the premium here well, it was under 100 million so given some some of the large deals we see in the market it was at the smaller end but I think it was it was a great fit for our streamlined approach for, for smaller schemes and we were able to uh, what that meant is we were able to price it quickly than more, or more quickly than would otherwise have been the case and certainly given the wider corporate activity I think I think that speed of being able to price was was really useful. 
Thanks, Julian. So we're obviously talking about this transaction in particular today because of the, the unique element or the driving factor around the M&A transaction that was taking place. So I think it would be helpful to explain what Lincoln's role was in the relationship that they had with the with the sponsor and the, the purchaser. Adolfo, to, could you give our listeners a bit of an insight into what your role was in this particular transaction? Certainly, Paige. Our involvement in this situation dated back to a previous acquisition of the corporate where Lincoln supported the negotiations that ultimately led to a meaningful one-off capital injection to the pension scheme out of the proceeds of the transaction. Essentially, what was achieved in that, in the context of that transaction was funding the scheme to a level that was broadly consistent with what we would in the industry refer to as self-sufficiency. So it's worth bearing in mind that when the, you know, the, the investors that had acquired the, the, the business at that point came into this business, they had in their minds acquired a pretty well-funded pension scheme. If you fast forward a few years, the corporate was once again put up for sale and Lincoln, uh, supporting the corporate, worked with the management team and the bankers to prepare both the marketing material that is required in this type of transactions and also the due diligence analysis that ultimately ends up in the data room. Now, as has already been referred to, a lot of our role then evolved from the unique requirements raised by the purchaser and responding to that, you know, in the context of a relatively short time frame of, of an M&A transaction. And can you talk to us about what views the purchaser had on, on taking the company's DB pension obligations? And in your experience, were their views similar to other companies in their position? The purchaser was very keen to acquire the corporate. It had actually put itself forward in the process and, and put forward a attractive valuation for the underlying business. However, it made it clear very early in the process that it was not prepared to take on any DB pensions obligations. And this essentially led to quite a bit of thinking among the advisory group on, on the corporate side around what solutions would be compatible with that requirement. And, you know, your listeners page will be well aware of the fact that actually unwinding or decoupling a pension scheme from its corporate sponsor is not something you can wish away overnight. And there is a quite extensive period to follow. So quite a bit of considered thought was had to be given to that requirement. To some extent, that is worth putting into context around what purchasers in, in the current environment demand from uh, corporate sellers when it comes to pricing the pensions liabilities. A decade ago, a lot of purchasers would actually be looking at the accounting position of a pension scheme, whereby if a pension scheme was fully funded on that particular basis, then there would probably be very little need for any additional due diligence to be undertaken on that obligation. If you kind of fast forward to the last few years, purchasers have been burned from previous interactions with DB 
obligations. And today in the M&A market, a lot of the transactions we're seeing are getting priced closer to self-sufficiency funding, whereby, as I mentioned before, proceeds from a transaction can actually be used to actually improve the funding of a pension scheme where funding sits below that level. Now, what made this transaction quite unique was that the purchaser was was keen not to take the DV obligation at all, not, notwithstanding the funding position of the scheme. And it is fair to say that with the Pensions Act, uh, which has come into force earlier in the year, and you know the gradual buildup of prudence in the funding basis of pension schemes, we've, we're seeing some investors push in the direction of the, the situation we found ourselves in in this transaction, which is essentially saying we're not willing to take uh, the DB obligation. Now, it's fair to say that's probably just a segment of the market, but it is a trend worth uh, noting for those CFOs and CEOs planning to put their businesses up for sale uh, over the next few years. M&A certainly acts as a catalyst for de-risking transactions, given the proceeds that may be available, like you just mentioned. We've certainly seen a number of these, both large and small in size. And I expect as M&A activity picks up and the pensions regulatory regime continues to evolve, we'll see more deals incorporating a de-risking transaction. So in order for the purchaser to be comfortable with the acquisition, were there any specific provisions that were needed to be included in the agreement? And could you also summarise some of the main steps involved to get the transaction across the line? Happy to do those. And, and really, there were, there were two major requirements set by the purchaser. One we touched on already, which was the fact that there would be no realistic chance that the purchaser would end up having to underwrite the DB pension scheme. As I said before, quite a bit of a challenge, in particular in the context of the second requirement, which set that the relevant protections would need to be in place by the time the purchaser was in control of the corporate. So essentially from day one. Now, after quite a bit of considered thought, and, and working with the various stakeholders, um, and I know Tom might, might, might be able to extend on this in, in a moment, we, we came up with a strategy that essentially had three stages. The first one was around building consensus and reaching agreement with what was a multi-stakeholder arrangement, reaching agreement both between the purchaser and the corporate, but also between the corporate and the trustee, which ultimately would have to execute on some of the requirements of this strategy. The agreement that was ultimately reached would essentially need to resolve on how much value would need to be secured on day one to give the purchaser the comfort that it required under its first requirement around no realistic chance of of having to underwrite the pension scheme, and also set a timeline for which that value would be released back to the sellers if certain milestones were hit along the way. The second stage of the process would involve immunizing the pension scheme for further market um, and experience 
and that very much revolved around securing a buy-in policy as quickly as possible. I mentioned a moment ago the importance of those milestones to the sellers. Being able to secure the buy-in for all of the membership would essentially represent one of the key milestones that would unlock value flowing from the escrow account to the sellers. So a very important milestone for for that particular uh, stakeholder. And ultimately, the third step involved the winding up of the pension scheme and all the arrangement that had been put in place, including the escrow amount. It's fair to say there was quite a bit of concern over the how the funding position of the scheme could change, in particular in the wake of the US election, which was going to take place only a few weeks thereafter, and also around finding or reaching agreement around the level of capital that would need to be set aside to be able to find a resolution for for this transaction. So Julian, can you tell us how the buying transaction was structured in a way to satisfy the requirements of the M&A agreement? Yeah, thanks Paige. So I I guess that the first key way in which we were able to structure the buy-in to satisfy uh, the, the wider activity was to make sure that it covered all of the scheme's members. So as Adolfo said, I think it was clear from day one that the purchaser was was interested in the company but didn't want any DB exposure. So obviously, yeah, key thing there was to make sure that the transaction covered all members of the scheme. So it's both the current pensioners in payment and also all of the deferred members. And fortunately, that's very much BAU for us. And obviously, we, we, we've done lots and lots of scheme transactions in the past that, that gave exactly what the sponsor was looking for there. I guess I guess the second key point is 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 around price certainty in the period both leading up to signing the buying contract and also simultaneously the the the, the wider sale of the business was going on and obviously the parties there were quite keen to achieve certainty in terms of the sponsor funding that would ultimately be needed so we 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 gave a price or fairly on in the process that was that was accepted by the trustees and the sponsor and we we, we were taken forward as a sole insurer, but to achieve price certainty, and as I said, that was one of the key requirements here in terms of making sure that the wider agreement worked. What we were able to do was provide a price lot to the scheme's actual assets with with a bit of tweaking around the edges, but fairly minimal. So it meant we could quickly and quite cost effectively lock down the price relative to the scheme assets by effectively linking our price to the value of those assets for the in the period leading up to signing the buying contract. I think as part of that price lock, what we were also able to do was fix the amount of the capital injection from the sponsor. And now given, obviously given the wider M&A activity, I think that was that was really useful in terms of us being able to lock down not only the price relative to the scheme assets, but also include the sponsor capital funding within our price lock. So again, it gave the seller and the purchaser a fair amount of certainty in terms of the capital capital injection that were that would ultimately be needed to facilitate the transaction, which I think hopefully was 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 well received and valuable for for all parties. I, I guess there's a couple of other softer non-structural points that I would I would make as well here. So I think there was in terms of the various advisors involved. I think. The, the the wider activity meant that the time pressures were much more than would normally be the case. So I think there was a real 
sense of pragmatism from everybody involved that, OK, let's just in terms of reviewing the legal documents, let's not spend too long. And it, and it, and it was great that we didn't end up in um, protracted legal negotiations, which would, could quite easily have derailed the process. So, so I think I think there was a real sense of um, a, a willingness on all parties to, to just to get it done and not to derail things unnecessarily. And I think genuinely as well, it was um, it was a genuinely collaborative approach between all parties. Certainly on this one, I think there was a recognition that what was available was potentially beneficial for the scheme longer term. So it was more a case of working together to get it done as quickly as we can do and not, not to unnecessarily derail the wider corporate activity. Thanks, Julian. Collaboration is certainly a key aspect of when there are several stakeholders involved and something that is a trend through most of these transactions in terms of making it a success and getting it across the line. Did the provisions change the way that we would usually manage a buyout from an, an insurer's perspective? From an insurer's perspective, there, there were definitely differences in this process than we normally see. I think fundamentally, it's it was a full scheme transaction at which we're well experienced in. But also, I, th I think some of the key differences were mainly around the timings. So obviously, it wasn't just us completing a buy-in in isolation from whatever was going on at the sponsor, which is normally the case. The whole reason for the for the for the, for the buyout was to fit with the sale of the sponsor. So again, that meant that there were shorter timescales than usual. I think in every case we work on, there were all there's always time pressure. But particularly the case where maybe it's, if it's a buyer of an ongoing scheme with a, a solvent sponsor, then the, the time pressures here were, were, were a lot more focused than would have been the case there. Uh, I, th I think already mentioned providing the price certainty was absolutely key. So we worked with the various parties to make sure that we had something that met the requirements of all parties involved. And I think, again, providing a price lock to scheme assets is is fairly is, is fairly standard procedure for us now, but again, it was much more key here. And the fact we were able to include the sponsor capital within the price lock was was really useful. Some of the other, some couple of other differences, I, I guess, multiple advisors. So always good to work with lots of different advisors. And I guess any any de-risking transaction, whether that be a buy-in or a buyout that a company does these days, they will always get their own specific company-focused advice. But I guess what from an insurer perspective, quite often we'll just be dealing with one set of advisors and quite often that would just be the trustee advisors. But here, obviously, given the wider activity, we, we work quite closely with Adolfo and the team at Lincoln to make sure that we, we understood the wider process much more so than would normally be the case. Uh, and I, th I think the final point uh, is just just in terms of we're, I guess we're, we're always pleased to secure member pensions. And I, I think we, we never forget that at the end of the day, people that are relying on LNG to pay their pensions going forward for the long term. But I think what was also quite satisfying as well, that we were able to help uh, facilitate the purchase of the company. And hopefully that is a positive for the company's future prospects. So, yeah, I guess that 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 was was great. As I say, always great when we can secure members' pensions. But I think it was uh, particularly pleasing here that we were able to hopefully have a positive influence on something that is good for the long-term future of the company. Positive outcome all around then, as it sounds. I hope so, yes. <laughs> so we've looked at the transaction from the acquirers and the insurers' perspective, but to round this off, I think it'd be great to hear from 
Tom to understand if there were any aspects of this transaction that differed from a normal buying process, which made you as a, a sole trustee approach things in a different way, given the M&A aspect um, driving the transaction. Yeah, of course, Paige. I mean, by far the biggest difference from our perspective was a timescale. It's been touched on a few times in the podcast, but to give you some idea of context, we were tasked with executing a buy-in within approximately eight weeks, when typically we'd be looking at a period of three to six months to work through that process. As I've touched on before, we also had the sponsor keen to achieve price certainty and that price lock mechanism as quickly as possible within what we've already described was a, a very accelerated process. So I hope that gives you some context of the the sort of the time scale that we were working in compared to what we'd typically be looking for. And I do think that timing constraint actually was a driver of a, another positive difference, which was the nature and the extent of the, the advisor collaboration. You know, to hit that timetable, we needed the trustee, the company, our respective advisors, LNG and Julian's team really to be working seamlessly and effectively together. Uh, and I think that did create a good positive working environment with a lot of and probably a lot more collaborative working between the various stakeholders and their advisors than we would maybe typically see. It's quite a, a short time scale going from three to six months to eight weeks. So collaboration, as you said, definitely key to getting this this done. Now, what has the reaction been from the pension scheme members? Is the transaction still within buying state and it's moving to buy out or have certain things been been already communicated to them? Yeah, well, obviously we've completed the buy-in stage and we're now working our way through in preparation to move to buy out. Um, so we obviously informed our members of the, the buy-in transaction, but you know, wider member feedback has been limited to date, which is not unusual in these situations. What we often find is as we move to buy out, members are being issued with individual policies and there's change in payment that that's when we typically get more member queries but what what's important is a clear communication strategy it was important to get the members up to speed with the buy-in and to keep them updated and engaged as we work through towards hopefully that that buyout in the the not too distant i mean one one of the benefits of this particular structure was whilst we were sole trustee we did work quite closely with a small consultative committee and this comprised the former trustees two of whom were, were members of the scheme and to us this was fantastic because it gave us real granular insight from the membership around the buy-in and you know the feedback from that group has been you know very positive i mean firstly i think they were really pleased that we've been able to secure members benefits with a, a recognized name in the the insurance market and secondly, and I think to pick up a point Julian raised earlier, they were, they were particularly pleased that being able to secure members' benefits but in a way that also allowed the employer to move on on the next stage of its strategy and journey, you know, rather than the scheme being seen as a potential blocker or, or barrier to that. And sometimes you can forget members are sometimes or often either current employees or former employees, and, and they do have that loyalty to both the scheme and the employer. And I think it was really pleasing and noticeable to them that what we'd achieved here did feel like a a win-win for both the the employer and the scheme, and that was seen, I think, as another real positive by that uh, that group. Thanks, Tom. And for any trustees listening today, is there any advice that you can offer to those that may be in a similar position to this specific scheme? 
Yeah, I mean, a, a few points. Uh, I mean, firstly, don't assume all corporate M&A is a risk or threat to the covenant. You know, there can be opportunities, and this is a classic case in point where an M&A transaction can improve and potentially help secure members' benefits. So do take time as trustee to understand the specifics. I think along with that, do make sure you understand the transaction timetable. You know, what is it? What are the key dates? What's driving those? And most importantly, what's the ask of the trustee and by when? As you've heard on through the podcast, there was a need as trustee to be flexible and ready to make quick decisions if we were to capitalise on this opportunity. So if you are in this position as a trustee, do make sure you've got a governance structure that can allow you to move quickly and deliver when needs. Final point, it would probably go without saying to make sure you have good and trusted advisors around you, but do make sure you as trustee or somebody within your group, it takes responsibility for coordinating the various advice and work streams required as a trustee, effectively project managing the process from a trustee or a scheme perspective. And the, the bigger the potential opportunity for members, the shorter the timetable you have to deliver that, the more critical that project management role becomes in securing those member outcomes and it's often overlooked at the start but can be critical to delivering good member outcomes. Thanks Tom, some really useful points there for our listeners. Before we end today, do either Julian or Adolfo have any final comments or thoughts they would like to end on? Just that goal, Paige, if I may, the, the kind of key theme, I think, coming across from um, Julian and, and, and Tom and my, my earlier comments, which is ultimately the transaction delivered a win-win outcome, both for members and the corporate. But that was only possible through close collaboration across all the stakeholders in the process and also by keeping an open mind about the unique opportunities created by the corporate transaction. That is something we expect to see more of. I think directors at corporates, CFOs, are actually thinking more carefully about the obligations they have through, you know, and those obligations are become clear given the changes in regulation and law in the background. So I think it's something that your listeners might come across over the next few years. Great. Thanks, Adolfo. And Julian, do you have anything? Fundamentally, we're here to secure members' pensions and to make members' pensions. And the fact we were able to help out and and, and enable the, the buyout to happen perhaps quicker than would otherwise been the case, but also at the same time to hopefully uh, uh, take part in a process that's beneficial for the for the long-term future of the company and also beneficial for the People that work there, many many of whom will be will, will be members of the scheme. So, no, just a just a, a great opportunity, really, and and yeah, and hopefully, as as Adolfo says, that there, there, there's many more um, that we can work on in the future. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But I just want to say a massive thank you for all of you for joining and talking to us about this specific transaction that was driven by the M&A transaction and and demystifying the process for any trustees that are listening today. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast, Institutional Insights, via Apple Podcasts and Spotify so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening and goodbye.